Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Today we're going to be speaking with Charlotte Jones Voikless, the granddaughter of Madeline Lingle. And co-author of the new book, Becoming Madeline. Hello, Charlotte. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. When you were a child, how aware were you of your grandmother being a writer? I think I was very aware of that because she she was writing all the time and we spent a lot of time with her while she was writing. Um, I didn't really get a sense of her as a famous author until until later, but as a writer, um, that was very clear from my earliest memories and knowing of her. Did she tell you about the stories she was writing when she was writing them? Um, yes, and more than that, my sister and I had the opportunity to read some of them in manuscript form. I mean, this is when we were a little bit older. I mean, I have a distinct memory of reading A Swiftly Tilting Planet um, in 1977 before it was published, and reading it in her ivory tower, the family <laughs> And she jokingly called her her writing space in her home in Connecticut her ivory tower. It was just a room above the garage, <laughs> but it was her private space that no one no one was allowed into except um, my sister and and me. We were allowed, um, and we knew how to be quiet with her, uh, and that involved doing our own reading and sometimes writing as well. When you described that space in the book, it just sounded magical with all the like journals and manuscripts and oh, just sounds wonderful. Yeah, and comfortable chairs and there's always a dog and um, records as well. What kind of records? Classical music, classical music, Bach. I didn't know if we were going to find out that she was super into like reggae or (laughs) something like that. No. It just, the music that's always sort of playing in the background in the books just sounds too good to be true, but I guess it was true. <laughs> it, it really was. It really was true. I, I was really struck when I was reading the book about how the influences that she had as a child in terms of literature were exactly the same books that I was influenced by when I was reading her books too. It was, it was so interesting to me, like the Emily of new moon books. I have read those hundreds of times and CS Lewis Mm -hmm. and, and all of the other books that she references in her journals. I just think that is so interesting that she was so influenced by all of those things. You don't really think of some of them as being contemporary um, or really think about the timeline where things fit together. But that was so cool just to like get the, the little inside scoop on what she was influenced by as a child. Yeah, her reading really f- formed her. And I think, you know, we, we didn't get to talk about absolutely everything in, in the biography. Um, but when you mentioned sort of the books that were influential on her, development as a writer and a, a thinker and, you know, a moral human being. It's, it is, it's people like Ella Montgomery and George MacDonald, um, who wrote wonderful fairy tales. I always have to mention George MacDonald, who, who she loved. 
He is wonderful. I, I have a whole shelf of just like fairy tales, and he's a, a big chunk of it. <laughs> <laughs> Were there particular books that you remember her introducing you to that weren't hers? Oh, The Secret Garden. She loved that book as story, but also as a sort of guide is the wrong word, but she would talk and write about how, you know, the character development um, of Mary Lennox is so wonderful in that. I will say there was one book when I, that, that she disapproved of when I was, I think I was in eighth grade and she found out that I was reading um, the flowers in the attic book, <gasps> and she was she was horrified. I am with your grandma on that. <laughs> <laughs> she did not approve. You know what's really funny is the only book anybody ever tried to censor for me was actually A Wrinkle in Time. Really? I went I went to a little private Christian really? school. Yeah, I went to a private Christian school, and they were so strict, and I read all the time. And one day, one of my teachers saw what I was reading, and he gave me a funny look. And the next day, he he was reading from the part where um, where they fall on their knees in front of the the true forms of Mrs. What's It and Which and Who. Mm-hmm. And he he my teacher said that that was you know idolatry, idolatry and sacrilegious and whatever. And I was so mad at him, not necessarily because he was trying to censor us but because he clearly hadn't even read the next page where she's like not to the us next never page to where us she says not to me yes yeah. and and it's so clear and it was so offensive to me because a wrinkle in time and the books by c.s lewis were really what i think gave me my like foundation of of religion more than anything else and it's so horrifying that somebody tried to censor it on that basis so irritating i'm still mad it's it's really i mean it's 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 baffling to me um that it it's had so much censorship um from christians but also um from from non-christians too that i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of bible in a wrinkle in time Mm -hmm. um and that that bothers people that bothers other kinds of people Mm-hmm. too. So she was sort of caught in the middle a lot. Um, but she didn't, this book was so important to her. And I think it came from the very deepest part of her that um, she just, everything that was in there was in there for a reason. Um, and she felt that it was part of the story and I think in the in our book Becoming Madeline we quote from a journal of hers where she says that A Wrinkle in Time was her psalm of praise to life her stand for life against death mm-hmm. um, and I think that I think that is a very theological theme Did your grandmother ever talk to you about her Newberry experience? Well, it's it's hard for me to separate what she told me herself and then what I knew from reading her own books about it, Mm -hmm. too, and whether we had discussions about it. But, um, but, you know, no one expected a a wrinkle in time to do well. It, It had a it had two years of rejections. And then when Ferris Dress and Giroux finally accepted it, they did so 
with low expectations of sales, but it was at a time where a publishing house could invest in an author, and so they 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 believed in her as a as a writer. Mm-hmm. So even the letters that the publisher sent out to reviewers, um, you know, called it an odd book, <laughs> and that they didn't expect it to do very well, but it might appeal to certain you know certain smarty pants. Um, people. <laughs> um, and so no one was more surprised than the publisher um, or she when kids loved it and librarians loved it and teachers loved it. And they were the really, really the ones who, who championed it. Um, so getting, you know, winning the Newbery Award was both a huge shock and also a vindication in some ways, mm-hmm. um, but also just um, totally surprising, so surprising um, after after the heartache she had gone through with the book. Um, but it it did it changed it it changed a lot of things for her winning the Newberry um, because it. Um, sort of launched her into a, and also a second career of writing about writing and talking about writing um, and traveling and lecturing. I did a read a story online about how at the Newberry Awards ceremony, someone went into the ladies restroom during the Newberry speeches and there was a publisher <laughs> who had rejected the story in there just sobbing. <laughs> Yes, that's true or not. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that I've heard that story too. Um, and then pu- other publishers saying, well, if you had submitted, submitted it to us, we would have published it. Um, and she said, well, I did submit it to you. <laughs> I, of course, only know your grandmother's writing. But I can imagine she had a list <laughs> of where she had sent it. Just to keep track. I think, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I've, I, she always said she didn't, I've heard two, two things. She always told me um, that she didn't, you know, she didn't keep her rejection slips, but she could have papered her, you know, the walls with them, not just for Wrinkle, but for other books as well. Um, and then I heard someone say that she, she told them that she kept every letter and and I haven't found every letter I found about three rejection Mm -hmm. um letters that were kept but I I don't think I don't think she kept her rejection letter she probably kept a mental list though Mm -hmm. (laughs) of of the places and I think there were some that were particularly painful to her because yeah you know the publisher that had taken meet the Austins or and both were young they they rejected it Mm -hmm. um so I think that was that was difficult for her, particularly when she believed in the book so strongly. Um, and she wasn't afraid of revision, but the feedback she was getting, um, she didn't trust it because she didn't think that anybody understood the book. She would work very hard for an editor um, if she thought that they, they got it that they understood it, but, but no one, no one understood this book. What amazing fortitude. Just, you know. Well, and how amazing that the it, editors it, reacted that way when everybody in the whole world basically loves this book. 
it is. I think I think grown-ups still respond that way, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really is a book for the young and the young at heart that you do have to go into it with um, with an open mind and an open heart for it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I always liken it to, you know, there's a scene in the book where Meg, they're explaining the dimensions to her and, and the Tesseract. And she says, oh, I think I get it. I got it just for a moment, right? That mm-hmm. is kind of these moments of revelation. Like I can't, I see it. I see it. Um, and I think that that children understand that and have a lot more patience with that than adults do, because I think that's how um, kids, a lot of sometimes knowledge comes that way. Oh, and then it goes away and you have to sort of grope your way to it over time. Um, but those flashes of revelation, I think, um, was something that she always looked forward to. Um, and I know I do too. They mm-hmm. come few and far between. <laughs> if I may ask, because the A Wrinkle in Time was so such a touchstone book for me. Um, I read all sorts of things growing up and, you know, this was, I think the only book that I remember reading before I was 10 that had a girl main character going on this massive adventure and, um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't pastoral like the Anne books or, um, like little house on the prairie. Mm -hmm. Um, this was, she was going off the planet, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so do you think that there was any kind of do you think there was misunderstanding about the book partially due to that? Oh, I think definitely. I think definitely as part of it was a genre thing. Like mm-hmm. if it's sort of science fiction, I don't understand this female character. And I think that often back, back in those days, but still often today that um, girls aren't given adventures on a cosmic scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I think it I I think that was a stumbling block for a lot of editors and publishers but you know she she valued her um women's only education I mean she went to a girls girls boarding school and she went to Smith College and I I you know she would say that there they had to do everything if there needed to be a president of a club it was one of them so and so why would she give why would she give the best part to a boy a girl can a girl can be um you know the the heroine of this story mm-hmm. i was so intrigued to read that that on the school paper she worked with the author of the feminine mystique that was amazing betty Friedman. Yes. yeah yeah yes she was betty Goldstein, I think, then, <laughs> and um, they worked together on the literary magazine, and, and my grandmother was the editor, and I think Betty was the um, business manager. So, as far as your writing this book, um, was it difficult for you to sort of come up with the 
the body of the book, considering how much is already out there, like by and about your grandmother already, was it kind of hard to find the, the space in there for something that hadn't already been written? Well, it was, it was challenging too, because I didn't, I mean, I really didn't want to write a middle grade biography. I didn't want to write, a, you know, Madeline Lingle was born kind of, kind of book. And yeah, she had written so much about her own life. Um, and there's been, there's been certain things written about her, but really not a lot of scholarship actually, uh, that, you know, my sister and I sort of thought about, well, what, what do we have to say about our grandmother that's unique? What do we have access to that's unique and can help tell this story? And it really was the family, um, letters and photographs and journals that it was something that we wanted to do together. And um, we wanted her telling the story with us. So, so using, using those letters and journals, I think is what really um, makes the book. So, well, it makes it so special to, to me to really hear her voice in that. And was it difficult to work with your sister? It wasn't. I wasn't, again, I was sort of resistant to this project at first um, because, you know, my sister and I are 14 months apart and we get along wonderfully now, but that wasn't always the case. <laughs> um, and and collaboration sounds warm and fuzzy and wonderful, but it can just as easily lead to conflict as, as um, cooperation. And so I was very nervous about that because Lena and I are very different. We have different personalities. We have different voices. We have different instincts. Um, But it really ended up being such a wonderful gift for both of us uh, to work together on this and then to be able to sort of um, do a little book tour and talk to school groups and, um, and people about it. It was really fantastic. We worked on Google Docs. And um, even though, you know, we're about, we live about 50 miles away from each other, but but we worked remotely um, most of the time. And um, she is, she's a writing teacher. Um, so she is also a great, she's not afraid to put words on a page. I am much more um, a, a first draft is terribly difficult for me. <laughs> it's hard for her too, but she just knows how to, how to get it done and push through. So often if we would get stuck, she, she'd start writing and then I would go back and edit that. And then my juices were flowing. So I would keep writing and then she would go back and edit over that and keep writing. So it was really like a a running backstitch and sewing kind of thing where we, you know, I think both of us agree that each of us wrote every word together. There isn't a section that she wrote and a section I wrote. We, it really was um, a combined effort. It is really seamless. In reading it, you would think that it was one author. You guys did an awesome job on the collaborating. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Was there anything in particular that you discovered um, going through these letters and pictures and 
um, that you didn't know before? Um, yeah, well, so she's, she wrote a lot about her life. Um, and the part of her life that Lena and I always found the most fascinating was that time, um, between college and getting married, her time in the theater. Mm-hmm. And we loved sort of reading and discovering more about that. Um, she, you know, the, I think the big surprise was um, uh, Marie, her friendship with this woman, Marie, who was her best friend in college, and they moved to New York together, and they were going to take the theater world by storm. Um, and then, you know, sort of their their career paths take different routes, and there's some jealousy involved, and they have a, they have a terrible breakup. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in fact, my grandmother never talked about Marie or mentioned her or wrote about her in her own memoirs. Um, So I think that was really a surprise. The other thing that was surprising was just how ambitious she was. Um, You know, we knew her when, (laughs) when she was already Madeline Langle and, (laughs) and writer of a a wrinkle in time, but, but um, throughout her journals from a very young age, very young age, she wanted to be a writer, but not, she didn't just want to write. She wanted to be a great writer. She wanted to write her name on a scroll, on the scroll of fame. She wanted to, um, you know, she says, please grant me genius that she didn't just want to write. She wanted to be a great writer and she wanted to make her living writing. Um, so that was sort of, a surprise but also kind of like well duh I mean how do you how do you manage to write all these books and persevere the way she did unless you unless you really want it I love the story of perseverance right but it also it also bothers me a little bit because I think it it can, the way we tell that story can sometimes make people feel like, oh, look, just try really hard and you too can win the Newbery Award, right? <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's not, if she didn't, if A Wrinkle in Time was never published, would she, would she have been a failure? I don't, I don't think she would have been. Yeah. Um, so it's like, what are the lessons of perseverance? It's not that if you persevere, you will get everything you want. But it's like if you persevere, you will discover things on the way that are worthwhile. And I think we sometimes forget that when the stories we tell are these kinds of, look, Madeline Langle persisted and she won the Newbery Award. Mm-hmm. That there's other, there's other things we need to remember about that. Yeah. That's my, sorry, that's my particular <laughs> hobby horse. I think it's important, really important, and everyone that we've been speaking with it seems we get around to a part in the conversation where they they talk about what the Newberry or kind of the pinnacle of children's literature, kind of their view of it. And so I'm very glad that you you got to that, that, you know, mm-hmm. this is something you can work your whole life for. You may not get it, but it's what the work does for you and does to you as a person. Right. Right. Because it's an external it's an external validation and we all like, let's be real. (laughs) We all need, need some of that. Right. But, um, but the, 
the gift is what you learn on the on the way mm-hmm. and it might and and you might discover what you really want is something different as well So I have a completely unrelated question that you probably don't have the answer to or may not tell me if you have it, but one of... I have okay. no idea what she's going to ask. I don't know. <laughs> like, if I could ask any author any question, like living or dead, any question, I just want to know what happened to Charles Wallace. <laughs> Do you have any oh, idea? <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's still out there fighting the good fight. I think you're probably I mean, right. I, I, I don't know. Um, and she probably didn't know. She probably wouldn't know until she wrote the book about Charles Wallace. Um, that is one of the things I so, like about all of her whole body of work is how eventually these tiny threads meet up later in a different place. And it seems like it was intended all along, but it probably just happened as she was writing. But, oh, I wish I wish I knew what happened to Charles Wallace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, she definitely didn't um, plot this all out. She, you know, her characters became real for her and then she, you know, they would pop up again and she would find out what happened to them. She didn't feel like she was in control of her characters so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she practiced her craft every day. She was the writer. She, she had her toolkit. Um, it, it wasn't just sort of this, speaking in tongues or divine thing that came through her fingers. She worked very hard, but she did also listen. So I think like JK Rowling famously plotted out all of the Harry Potter books on a napkin and one afternoon, mm-hmm. I think um, she, she did not work that way. Again, she, a story came to her and maybe it bubbled up over decades. Like it had been percolating for a long time. One of the things we discovered in writing the biography was, you know, and look through her journals that there were references to the Tesseract and to life is like a sonnet back in the earlier fifties. So there were themes that she'd been thinking of and building, um, for a decade. Um, but she didn't, she wasn't a plotter. She was a pantser, as my sister would say, you're either a plotter or a pantser. You either plot things out or you fly by the seat of your pants. So I, and my sister is more of a pantser. I, I am more of a plotter. Um, and I think my grandmother was, was definitely a, a pantser. Um, but she would, I mean, I don't think she would use those terms, but she, she would say that she listened. She listened to what the work was telling her. And sometimes it, it made her, you know, do a lot of rewriting. And she talks at, somewhere about writing the arm of the starfish mm-hmm. and she's writing along and all of a sudden I think it's Joshua shows up a character um, and she didn't expect him to be there. And she said she had to rewrite the whole first third of the book because here came this new character. Um, so, and, and, you know, she wrote, so wrinkle in time was published in 1962 and um, A Wind in the Door, the sequel, so-called, didn't come out until 1973 because she didn't, she wasn't ready to write that book. She wasn't going to write that book. And it's the, you know, the publisher didn't 
forced it on her, although they must have been chomping at the bit <laughs> for it, you know. Um, but she denied she denied ever writing a series. She always said that they were companion <laughs> books. But they were, though. Like, even Meet the Austins and, like, you get out there with the Arm of the Starfish and the Small Rain and, like, all of those, they all they all are companion books. They all tie together. I love it. <laughs> they, they do. And it's so great to be sort of a Langle geek um, <laughs> because you get to see and then, you know, and read all her body of work because characters, you know, Camilla shows up in Life Cole and um, characters from House Like a Lotus are in a Severed Wasp. And it's all, it's all very, um, yeah, it's like a, a, a family of characters um, and she'd grow attached to them and would want to find out what happened to them to, to go back. I don't think she knows. I don't, <laughs> maybe she knows now, but I don't think she knew before she died what happened to Charles Wallace. But, but I have no doubt that he's um, yeah, he's doing good in the world, in the universe. That I just, I never even had that question. Like, I always just thought, like, oh, he's just out there still working. Well, I know, and I thought that <laughs> too, but you never know. Like, maybe yeah. maybe they're digging through papers and they find a page that's okay. like... Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. But it's just one of those things, like, it, it never occurred to me. I was like, Charles Wallace is, is working the mission. Well, surely. <laughs> surely he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Are there any characters that to you embody your grandmother the most? Meg, without question, mm-hmm. Meg. Um, and she always said that she was Meg. Um, and, you know, Meg's nearsightedness was <laughs> sort of a metaphor for all different kinds of myopathy or myopicness. So Meg's nearsightedness and her stubbornness and her passion and her loyalty and her intensity um were very much like my grandmother it's so funny because all of her characters you know the more you read about her the more it seems like all of her characters really are her in one way or another and it's it's just amazing that anybody could be so (laughs) self-aware like you read about flip and camilla (laughs) and everything and it's just so like she was so willing to capture her own flaws it seems like that is just something most authors won't do. I don't think she knew any other any other way. I mean, I think she was such she was such an honest storyteller um and sort of the emotional and and moral sort of life of the character um she had to sort of write from her own experience. Um, in that way, she's, you know, also every character, um, and sort of one of the things that, that blew my mind, mind recently thinking about A Wrinkle in Time, um, and the characters we identify with is, um, is like how we all, yeah, we all want to be the hero, right? The heroine. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking how, like sometimes we're also Charles Wallace on Camazots. Like we're the one who needs um, to be reminded and to be found and to be loved. Um, and that kind of made me cry out loud when yeah. I thought about that. What do you think of the movie? 
I love the movie. I think one of the, you know, one of the things about adaptation um, and especially adaptation of a beloved book, like everybody embodies that book differently. Um, and like your version would be different from my version of it. Um, but what we have, we have Ava's Verne's version. And I think it's a beautiful version of it that captures so much of what is important and beautiful about the original story, but it also gives us something that is so resonant for right now. Um, and I think Storm Reed as Meg uh, is such a revelation too um, um, with her performance. So I, I love the movie. Yes, there are things I miss. There are things I miss. So, <laughs> um, that's something I thought visually, yes, there's going to be different interpretations reader by reader, but I thought visually I, from the moment I saw the trailers, like the first trailer, I couldn't believe that it really was embodying so much of what I imagined just like the, mm. the world, like the world building, the visuals. Um, I was really I don't know. I was really captivated by that part. In oh, the scene where they bounced the balls was so yeah. exactly how I thought it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, that's scene. when I think back and there's so many things in that book that could possibly be scary to a young reader, but that is so sinister. That's always stuck with me as the scariest part of the book. Yeah. So, yeah. And actually seeing it on screen, seeing, seeing the whole Kamazot scene on screen, I realized again how scary it is for a kid to to how scary Charles Wallace is on Kamazot when it's like wait a minute that's one of us mm -hmm. like it's not just we're not just it's not the three kids fighting the bad guy and there's danger right Charles Wallace turns mm -hmm. he's gone um and he he isn't just sort of lost Right. He's not just like, oh, where is he? I mean, because he's physically there. But to, but um, so seeing it in the movie, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's really pretty terrifying. Yeah. Such a complex way to do it, too. I mean, there's not like a simple, oh, he died or, you know, something bad happened to him. That's like a very subtle but complex way to put together the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, he he goes. I mean, in the book, he makes a he makes a choice. He goes, he enters the man with the red eyes because he wants to know his father, and he thinks he is strong enough. Mm -hmm. He he is prideful, and he wants something, and so he makes a choice to um, to enter it, um, and he gets stuck there, um, and then it's up to Meg, yeah. not. Not the, not the father, Meg's the one who has to do it. Usually with each episode of our, of our podcast, we have a, a cocktail or something to sip on while we're talking about the book. So uh, some people don't drink, and if you don't, that's totally fine. But uh, we just usually ask people if they have a favorite drink. And if so, what it is. Oh, a favorite cocktail? Mm-hmm. Um, I like Manhattans. That's so appropriate. <laughs> yes. And I drank my first Manhattan when I was in Chicago. 
Um, <laughs> which I think is funny. What are some of your favorite Newbery books other than A Wrinkle in Time? Okay, Love Island or the Blue Dolphin. Okay. I love um, Bridge to Terabithia. I have never read The Westing Game, but I want to. Because, <laughs> That's one um, of Jenny's very favorites. <laughs> it's, oh. Uh, yeah. Well, you know Ellen Raskin designed the, the first cover of Wrinkle. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're nerds. <laughs> so I'd like to read... I, I want to read that. Um, I mean, I'm dating myself with my favorite um, <laughs> Newberry books. Oh, no. And oh, some no. of our favorites are some of the older ones. And um, The Witch of uh, Blackbird Pond. Oh, I oh, love yeah. that one. I yeah. love that one. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, that, that's my era. Those are great choices. know there's so many people love your grandmother's writing and thank you so much for continuing that so we get to learn even more I mean it's just so gracious of you guys to share your family story oh we're so happy that people are interested and want to and want to learn more about her so thank you (laughs) thank you thanks for joining us today on Newberry Tart where we talk to Charlotte Jones Voikless about all things Madeline Langle see you next time Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.